All right, good morning, Evergreen. Um, today we're learning about the Good Shepherd, how the Good Shepherd holds his sheep. Just like it was we sung, He Will Hold Me Fast. The Good Shepherd Holds His Sheep is the title of our sermon. So let's just pray as we get ready to hear God's word preached. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for John chapter 10. Thank you for its exciting journey through uh, John 10 that gives us a clear picture of the Good Shepherd. God, I just pray that by the, infused by the Spirit, your Spirit, Lord, that your word will be preached and we'll, your word will be heard in our hearts so that we will trust in your Son more, so we will know his, your Son more, so we will love him more. So God, I just pray that we become more in wonder of who you are as we enter into this Advent season of anticipating uh, the commemoration of your coming 2,000 years ago and also the, your second coming. So, Father, we thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that we would just be on fire for you, Jesus, and we will love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I, I got to admit, this John 10 study has been the most satisfying thing for me, just giving us a very clear picture of Christ Jesus, the good shepherd. And uh, so last week we talked about how the good shepherd knows his sheep by name and, and how the names have been written in the book of life before the foundations of the world, before creation even happened. And today the topic uh, of today is eternal security. Once you're in the book of life, is your, is your name written in pencil or permanent ink? All right, this is the topic of the day. I think this is a very critical thing that we understand as Jesus' sheep, as, as his church. And so I, we're going to be out of John chapter 10, verse 22. So please rise and find your place out of your Bibles. I hope you brought your Bibles so you can follow on John chapter 10, verse 22. Now, a little bit of a uh, context. Verses, uh, chapter, verses 21 to 22, about two months have passed. So this is not just a continuation from uh, verse 21, but the two, approximately two months have passed, and we're going to hear about how the good shepherd holds his sheep. This is God's word, verse, John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews that gathered around him were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered him, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. I give eternal life to them, the Bible says. And they will never perish, never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. God, you are so good. I pray that we will love you more as we hear your word preached. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Now, tonight's an exciting day for millions of Jews around the world. Tonight, when sunset happens, they're gonna, millions of Jews are going to be celebrating Hanukkah. And the menorah, the, the candelabra, is a, 
em- very emblematic of Israel. When I went to Israel, the menorah was everywhere. There's pictures of it. There's engravings in it. There was a huge uh, uh, menorah in, near the government center in, in Jerusalem. And so people will be lighting the menorah tonight. And, um, but this feast or this celebration of Hanukkah wasn't an Old Testament feast like Passover or the Feast of Booths. This was an intertestamental uh, 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 feast. Basically what that means is this happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that block of time in between. So this is a newer uh, celebration. And basically, in essence, it's an eight-day feast to celebrate and commemorate the overthrow of Greece. And a little bit of background, I think this will help us understand uh, what we're reading about today by giving a little bit of background into Hanukkah. Antiochus Epiphany, basically, this is the Seleucid king of the Greek Empire. He came and took over Jerusalem in 170 B.C., 170 years before the time of Christ. And his, he had a bent on Hellenizing the areas that he conquered. In essence, Hellenized means to make them Greek. Think like Greeks, act like Greeks. In essence, eliminate the old culture, the Jewish way, get rid of that, and implement a new way, the Greek way of thinking and doing life. And so one of the ways that he did this was he desecrated the temple, the most holy uh, place in all of Jewish life. And how did he do this? He sacrificed an unclean animal, a pig, Okay, for the Jews, this is a very disgusting thing that took place. They sacrificed a pig on, in the altar in the temple. This was an affront to all of Jewish life. It was desecrating in the temple. And not only that, he put a, erected a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. So Antiochus Epiphany was making an assault on the Jewish way of life. He's trying to eradicate that way of life forever. And this enraged the Jews of the time. As you could imagine, and a man named Judas Maccabeus, also known as the Hammer, okay, that was his nickname, the Hammer, led a revolt, and in 164, 164 B.C., they overthrew this government, and they were able to regain the temple, regain Jerusalem, and in essence, like, preserve the Jewish way of living, okay, the Jewish way of life. So this, Hanukkah is like a 4th of July for the Jewish people, okay, this is about liberation, Hanukkah is also known as a festival of lights. Okay, they light up the candle, the menorah. But also, as we find out here in John 10, 22, it's also known as the Feast of Dedication. So Jesus enters back into the temple under this context. The Jews are celebrating Hanukkah. They're celebrating, remembering a a, a hero such as uh, Judas Maccabeus, the hammer. And this is the setting. And as if, as we're, as we're in Advent season and we're lighting the candles and we're anticipating the coming of Christ on Christmas morning, perhaps this was in the mind of the Jews. They're anticipating a new liberator because the Greek Empire was crushed by a greater empire, by the Roman Empire, and Rome was in charge of Jerusalem now. Perhaps they're thinking, Jesus, could you be the next Judas Maccabeus, the next hammer to get rid of our Roman problem? And it was, a, it was, verse 23 says it was the winter time. It was cold, it was winter. And this is very emblematic of how the Jews treated Jesus. They, they have a chilling encounter with each other. Because uh, as 200 years earlier, the, Judas Maccabeus showed up to help liberate the temple. They asked him this very poignant question, verse 24. They asked him, 
Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And the Bible says they gathered around Jesus. They surrounded him. They mobbed him. They're just trying to get an answer. And when they ask him this question, are you the Christ? This has many political and military implications and overtones as they're perhaps thinking about Judas Maccabeus, perhaps getting their freedom back from Rome. And when Judas Maccabeus died, you know, he was a type of savior. He was a hero for, for the nation of Israel. The Apocrypha, uh, for, uh, Old Testament tradition, or let me say Jewish tradition writes, where Judas died, the people said, how is the mighty fallen, the savior of Israel? They considered Judas Maccabeus the savior of Israel. And like we talked about, 100 years after, you know, after the liberation, Rome would show up in, in more dominant form. And once again, they're oppressed, and here they are, they're asking Jesus, the Messiah, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus answers, I already told you, and, and the miracles that I've done, the works that I've done, should tell you that I'm the Messiah, the Christ, but a different type of Messiah. Not just a political or military ruler that's going to eradicate Rome or give you freedom for 100 years or 200 years. Jesus is the, the Messiah that gives freedom to all of us for eternity. And then basically he goes, you're not my sheep. You're not part of my sheep. Therefore, it's understandable why you don't understand. He's continued to can't come along with that theme of shepherd and sheep and indicting the Jewish rulers. You're not my people. Obviously, you don't understand. Verse 27 says, I know my sheep. They follow me. Okay, I know my sheep. You, otherwise, you'd follow me. So I want to just really zero in here on verse 28, 29. Okay, so if you could follow along, this is going to be some pivotal teaching that takes place. Eternal securities. Is it actually eternal? All right. Can't, once saved, are we always saved? This is a question that all Christians need to know. All Christians must be secure on to experience maximum joy in Christ. So verse 28 says this, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus, the good shepherd, speaking. Eternal life is not temporary life. Eternal life means forever. Eternal life is not eternal life until I take it away or you give it up. Eternal life is forever, okay, without end. Jesus says they will never perish. My sheep, you and me who are Christians, who are in Christ, will never perish. Okay, so obviously he's talking about a spiritual death. Never perish. And, and as I studied into this Greek word never, this is the strongest negative language in the Greek. It's like saying never, ever, ever, ever will you ever perish. Right? You will never, ever perish, Jesus says to his sheep. Okay, no one will snatch them out of my hands. No one, no one will seize them, take control, strong arm them out of my hand. Jesus holds us, he says, in no one's terms. He takes good care of us. He loves on us. He secures our salvation. And then verse 29, now he involves the Father. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is greater than the Father. Father is God. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We are handpicked by the Father. Every single one of us, as we learned last week, by name he has called the sheep forward. 
By name, he has written our name in the book of life. By name, Jesus went to the cross knowing that he'll save you and me who are in Christ. By name, God the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross to those of us who are in Christ. We're handpicked. And I want to just, you don't have to turn it, I'll read it to you, but John 6, 37, this, Jesus reiterates the similar concept. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39 of chapter 6, this is the will of him who sent me, the Father that sent Jesus, that of all that he has given me I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. We are God's love gift to the Son. The church is a special gift to the Son, a love gift. For this is the will of my Father, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him, believing in Christ as Lord, the Messiah, will have eternal life, not temporary life, not contingent life, eternal life, and I myself raising, up, raising Him up on the last day. No one is able to snatch Him out of the Father's hand, Jesus says. He says no one's able to snatch him out of Jesus' hand. No one's able to snatch him out of the Father's hand. And in, in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit as a pledge. So the entire Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has a hand in holding the sheep. Right? Yeah, the whole Godhead secures our salvation. Now, so that's the point of the message today. So if you only remember one thing, this make this very clear in your hearts and minds. Crystallize this in your minds. Once you're saved, once you put, have truly repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, your name is in the book of life. It's been done already in eternity past. And Christ is the one that holds you there. So is the Father. So is the Holy Spirit. If that's all you remember today, remember that. Let that crystallize and deepen your faith and love for Jesus. Now, I want to make sure we cover some verses, though. Why are there verses like this, Tim, okay? If that's a fact, Pastor Rocky, Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says this, You will be hated by all because of my name. All right? But it is the one who endured to the end who will be saved. Sounds like there's some kind of an effort here on our part. Endured? All right, Paul writes in Colossians 1, 21 to 23. I want to just read this as well. Some of these verses may challenge this idea, but I believe it actually crystallizes this idea of eternal security. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Jesus died on the cross. In order to present you before him, holy and blameless, perfect, sanctified, glorified, okay, beyond reproach. And here's the big F. If indeed, if indeed, you continue in the faith and firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have, have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. There's a certain endurance, there's a certain perseverance that we're talking about here in these verses. And I remember just uh, one of the big concepts, one of the massive concepts that we kind of talked about in my professional coaching days at the Seahawks was this concept called grit. Grit was basically perseverance with passion. You had stamina of effort. You're able to stick through it. You have resolve. You're resilient in what you're doing, even in hardships. And 
you, you, could, you could sustain this effort and this, in, in this direction even if it got hard. And we all know the Christian life is very hard. There's sin that we battle. There's hurts uh, and sins done by other people to us. There's sickness. There's illness. There's setbacks. There's all kinds of things that happen in the world. There's, there's things that we give up in order to, to follow Christ. There's cost here. We get this. And this is the type of person that we look for, coaches or players. We want it, you know, in terms of players, we, we like undrafted players. We like players who had a chip on their shoulder, who have felt like they had something to prove. We, had people, we like people who know how to compete and to fight. Because this is the type of man that we like to go to battle with. And even if it got tough, we know we're going to keep fighting to the end and see what happens. This gave, we believe this gave us the best chance to be successful. But what is this perseverance of the saints? What does perseverance of the saints look like? Is this the same type of grit that we're talking at the Seahawks? Different. This grit that we talked to the Seahawks was a fleshly, internal, like mental toughness that a certain makeup that this person brought to the team. All right, this inner internal resolve, like I will not give up. All right, this is a different type of thing. And theologians have this uh, term called perseverance of the saints. And this is what Jesus calls us to endure to the end. This is what Paul says to do if we indeed we continue in the faith. This is perseverance of the saints. And just like how God called us out of darkness into light and we had nothing to do with it, he wrote our names into the book of life before we were even in existence, before creation existed. Obviously, we did not have a hand in our own redemption. It's about God. Also, it's about God and God's grace and God's power to give us this spiritual grit, this spiritual endurance, this perseverance of the saints. God gives us the ability to endure to the end. It's not about us. It's not how determined, how disciplined you can be. It's about the power infused in us by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. All right, this is what we're talking about here. God, just like God called you and me by name who are in Christ, God also keeps us as his own. 1 Peter 1, 4-5, Peter says, we are protected by God. Protected by God to have this imperishable inheritance. God protects us to give us this imperishable, eternal inheritance. God gives us the power to do this, to endure, to have the spiritual grit to finish through, to fight through the fight, to fight the good fight of life that God called us to do. Now, what about those who have turned away from Christ? I mean, I'm sure many of us right now, as we're thinking, sitting here, you could think of somebody right now. Perhaps God has brought someone to mind, perhaps someone you dearly love, and a decade ago, man, this man or woman, this person, man, I could have sworn this person's a Christian. They went on mission trips, they love reading the Bible, and you know, they profess Christ, right? In a decade or so later, man, you can't even recognize this person anymore. They, they deny Christ. They say Christ was, is never real. They believe that, you know, this, this life is all you have to live or they're following some other false gods now. How, what do we do with those people, right? That's a very real question. And because this could be very personable for, personal for us, you know? If you're a parent, you have a brother or sister, you have a close friend, you have someone from back in the day at college ministry that you were shoulder to shoulder with, leading people to Christ. 
I want to give you First John. Let's turn to First John. This is too important. We need to be clear on this. We need to get. Re- we need to be reconciled. First John, chapter two, verse nineteen. A little bit of context. John writes a letter. This is the same author who wrote the Gospel of John. The same author who wrote Gospel John, chapter ten. And he warns about antichrists coming into the church. Antichrists are those who teach false doctrine, those who try to lead people astray. And he said there are people who will follow these antichrists. And this is John's explanation for who these people were or are. Verse 19, God's word says this, They went out from us, the fellowship of Christ, okay? But they were not really of us. Bible talks about wheat and tares. Wheat and tares, they look ex- almost exactly the same. The wheat obviously are Christians. Tares are not Christians. For if they had been of us, the church, the body of Christ, names written in the book of life, they would have remained with us. They would have stayed. They would have persevered. They would have endured to the end. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So the Bible explains that for those who have left, who clearly have, not in sin, who may be in a low point in their spiritual walk, but I mean clearly denounce Christ, turned their back on Christ, speaks against our Lord, they're never of us, the Bible says. Whether you're an antichrist teacher or someone following the antichrist, because remember, in verse 5, let's go back to John chapter 10. Jesus is a stranger they simply will not follow, but they'll flee from him. If you're truly in Christ, you'll be able to recognize an antichrist eventually before the point of falling off the cliff like that. Jesus says, and it's in, in essence, Jesus gives us illustrations. One of the great illustrations in the Bible is, is the illustration of the sower scattering seed. Some fell on good soil, some fell on rocky soil, some, some fell on thorny soil, some fell on the hard road, the stony the stony road, and this reminds me of the good soil. Perhaps there was some fruit, perhaps there was some kind of growth that took place initially. But when life got hard, when it got sunny, when it got tough, there weren't enough roots and foundation, so the plant just withered and died. The only soil that was of good soil was the good soil. The other soils were false soils. So Jesus talks about these soils. Jesus says, abide in me, keep abiding in me. And I think, um, you know, just one, one last jump here. I want to go to Romans 8. If you got your Bibles, go to Romans 8. I'm going to start off with a very famous uh, Bible verse that we know, Romans 8.28. Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to turn there, but this gives us a picture how eternal this thing is. This gives us a clear picture how eternal of a love gift we are to Christ Jesus from the Father. Remember this, salvation, we get to be benefiting from this. But is it really primarily about us? All right, let's read verse 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Qualified though, for those who love God, for God's sheep, God's church, to those who are called according to his purpose, called again to a unique purpose. Verse 29, just really dig in on these words. For those whom he foreknew, foreknew, foreknowledge, God had this planned out. He also predestined, 
predetermined, predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God chose you and me to become like his son, super glorified, perfectly glorified someday. And we're under that process right now on this earth so that he, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is the preeminent one, the firstborn, preeminent, not talking about chronological birth order, but preeminent one. He's the head of the church. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Let there be light. And you and I who are in Christ walked forward. And those whom he called, he also justified. Justified means declared innocent before God. No longer a sinner, but innocent. Just if I have never sinned. Just if I have lived Jesus' perfect life. God the Father sees you and me who are in Christ. And these whom he justified, look at this, he also glorified. Glorification is that state that we are perfectly like his son, sinless. We have perf perfected, glorified bodies. So this is a future event in our chronology. It hasn't happened yet. Okay, it definitely hasn't happened for us yet. Okay. But all these words, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, as I just look at this, uh, these terms in Romans 8, <coughs> 29 to 30, they're all past tense, foreknew, predestined, ED, called, ED, justified, ED, glorified, ED. This is all past, as it's, it's already happened in eternity past. How do you jump from justification to glorification? Because right now, you and I are under sanctification. We are in the painstaking process of becoming more like Christ day to day. That's what preaching of the word is for. That's what fighting sin is about. That's what uh, dying to our own sinful pleasures is about. This is a, this, we're under that process. And eventually when we die, we'll be into glorifications, and particularly when Christ's second return and we get our glorified risen bodies. So this is a future, glorification is a super, uh, is a future event in our chronology. But in eternity, it's already been done. Security as, is absolute. Now, I want to leave you with this thought here. He, God the Father, listen now. This is too important. He, the God the Father, will get what he paid for. He, God the Father, will get what he paid for. Remember what the church is, who we are. We're a love gift to the Son. The Father paid an extreme price. He gave up his own Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, poured out his precious blood to purchase us. God the Father will get what he paid for to present to his Son. This is about this love relationship between the Father and the Son. He will get what he paid for. He's not going to get 50% of what he thought, 60%, all of it, 100% of the body of Christ will be given to the Son as a love gift. It's not even about us. We get to benefit at an eternal level, but it's about the Father and the Son. Right? And the Bible says in, in John 10, my Father who has given them to me, it's a gift. We can't miss that point. God, Father has given them to me. That just blows me away. I just think about that and just go, wow. Somehow we're part of this love relationship with the Father and the Son, and it's not even about us. 
It's about that love relationship. And God the Father is going to give everything he promised to the Son. And he's the one that holds you fast. He's the one that's going to hold you in his hand. He, meaning the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I want to talk about um, a concept here. What are the implications here? I want to talk about eternal security versus assurance. Okay, Eternal security is what we've been talking about here. Who are we positionally before God? If you are in Christ right now, as you sit there right now or stand in the back, you are glorified in the eyes of Christ and God the Father. We're innocent. Done. Positionally, that is where we're at. That's an eternal reality. Done. It is finished, Jesus said. Okay. Now, some encouragement, some practical implications of as you're sitting there right now. Evidently, none of us are perfect. Evidently, we're still repenting of sin. Evidently, we're still getting upset at our family members, losing our patience, struggling in lust, struggling in laziness, and other things. I get it. Me included. All right, so we're all in this process here. We need to understand eternal security. This helps our sanctification. We, this gives us greater joy in, with our Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. But if you are in Christ, you could have assurance as well. Assurance, the difference between assurance and eternal security, is this, I'd say, is this. Assurance is a blessing, is a manifest blessing of knowing your, your feelings of who you are matches up with this eternal reality of security. What do I mean by that? A couple things could affect that assurance, just knowing this feeling that you have, this confidence, I guess, you know, this more this blessing that you could have, this assurance. If you're not girded up in God's word, if you don't know what God's word, like, as I just read to you, no one will snatch him out of my hand, eternal life, they will never perish. Like, if we don't have that completely crystallized in your heart and mind, Satan, the enemy himself, will give you an onslaught of fiery arrows and assault you with all kinds of lies every time you stumble. Every time you have this weird thought in your mind, go, see, how does God love you? See, how you're really a Christian. See, you just lost your salvation over again. See, that commitment that you made to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior, that didn't mean anything, they were just words. Right? So if you're not crystallized in, in, in this belief that the good shepherd holds you, this completely opens you up for attack from the enemy. You know this. You know this. That's one way where your assurance could be shaken if you are in Christ, if you're truly in Christ. Another, another way, if you're truly in Christ, that your assurance could be shaken is this. If you're in sin... If you're sitting here today and you have unrepentant sin, I'm not talking about your fighting temptation. I mean, you're just in sin right now, whatever it is. That could affect your assurance in your mind, in your heart. Sin absolutely blurs our, our view of who God is, our view of truth. You need to repent. The remedy for that is just simply repent. Believe on the power of the cross, what happened on the cross. Simply believe. Continue to believe what you put your trust in initially. God calls us to have spiritual grit, not from our own foundation, not by our own flesh, but the spiritual grit. Okay, by God's power, we keep fighting the good fight. Bible says in Romans, I believe as well, like there's going to be a spiritual, fleshly battle that happens, wages war constantly within us. Fight that fight. Fight it. Don't succumb to it. Fight it. 
Show yourself with having spiritual grip by the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who empowers you, God himself. Let's go. You fight this sin. And this is the life. This is the what endures to the end. This is the one who finishes the race well. This is the one that remains faithful to the end. This is, that, this is who you, the Bible's talking about, you and me. Let's, by the power of God who protects us and holds us, manifest his spiritual grit within us. It shows up as pretty much how the Seahawks show it. Like this is toughness, but it isn't generated within ourselves. That's the difference. The difference is that God graces us with his power to live with this conviction, this internal resolve that's born out of the spirit of God. Now remember this. Hanukkah, like I talked about, is celebrated here you know, by millions of Jews, you know, to commemorate an incredible feat that, was, that took place uh, thousands of years ago, you know, about 2,200 years ago, and led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, the hammer, and they liberated Jerusalem and the temple from strong opposition, the Greeks. And, but remember this, we have a greater celebration Okay, they're looking for a, 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 perhaps a political messiah or like a military messiah like Judas Maccabeus. They missed it. They weren't part of God's sheep. We are part of God's flock. We understand, we see, we hear, we understand that Jesus Christ, Advent is about Christ coming, the King coming. And he didn't come with a sword the first time. He came and died on the cross opposite of what people may have been hoping for and to liberate us all forever. But next time he comes, he's coming with a sword. And we're, those of us who are in Christ, we're on his side. This is why we celebrate Advent. This is why we get to uh, do communion today. This is why we celebrate as we take the, the cracker and the, and, and the juice, the body and the blood of Christ. We celebrate what Christ has done for us. We celebrate the price that the Father paid through Jesus Christ, his Son, to get us on his, into his family. So let's make sure as we come to the communion table, we come with right hearts. We come with worshipful hearts. Make sure you're a Christian. This is, what, this is for Christians. God calls Christians, those of us who have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. Perhaps this will be your first communion. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to become part of his family right now. But let's make sure we come to the communion table celebrating, commemorating the price that Christ paid for us. So let's pray and thank God for this good word. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the good shepherd that you paid the ultimate price to get us into your family. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us and that our eternity is secure in you, not because of us, because of you, God. You hold us in your arms. Father, you hold us. Son, you hold us. In spirit, you are a pledge, Lord. So God, I pray for, uh, as we come into the communion table right now, that we will have holy hearts, pure hearts to worship you right now. And we will do this with right hearts. And we will do this to commemorate and to remember, just, just obey what you have said, to remember the price that you paid for us. You broke your body and you shed your blood for us, your church. So God, I thank you for this. 
So Father, I pray for those of us in here who do not know you, and perhaps this will be the first communion that you have pricked their hearts, that they will repent, they will agree with you, God, that they're sinners, and they will trust in you, Jesus, for the sacrifice that took place on the cross, and they'll trust in you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. And this, this belief will be crystallized in their hearts, and perhaps communion will be the first act of obedience after coming to you as Lord and Savior. So, Father, bless this time. I pray that you are blessed as your church, your sheep come to take communion today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.